I invite you to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 41 will be our text for this morning's message. It was a blessed day for a man named Christian. After bearing his burden with great difficulty, he enters through a narrow gate and begins to run along a narrow highway bordered by a wall called Salvation. He reaches the cross where his burden falls to the ground. He's immediately filled with joy and he goes on his way freed and forgiven. As he goes along his way after the cross, he eventually encounters two suspicious characters, formalist and hypocrisy. Formalist and hypocrisy are trying to get to the celestial city but they do not seek to do so but they seek to do so on their own terms instead of entering by the narrow gate they jumped the wall and found themselves on the king's highway looking for a shortcut to make it to the city once the three of them reach the hill of difficulty the path looks as though it is to go over the hill of difficulty and formalists and hypocrisy want nothing to do with this path So they look around and they find two side paths, one to the left and one to the right. Christian realizing what is before him presses on and goes over the hill of difficulty while the other two diverge around the hill. To one path is called danger, the other path, destruction. And while they assumed it was an easier route, neither formality or hypocrisy or formalist, or hypocrisy were ever seen again. You see, they wanted to be in the kingdom, but they wanted to do so upon their own terms. And if you're interested in how the story finishes, pick up a copy of Pilgrim's Progress, as Christian would make his way to the celestial city. There are many things we can learn about these two individuals, formalist and hypocrisy. They wanted all the blessings and advantages of belonging to the kingdom, They wanted to be in without belonging. And what we see here in front of us in Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 41, Jesus is going to give us a short series of teaching points describing what it's like to be in his kingdom, what living in the kingdom of Christ entails. So when we define the kingdom of Christ, it is the everlasting realm where Jesus is both redeemer and king. And those who have been brought in by the Redeemer live as citizens under the rule of King Jesus, receiving all the rewards, benefits, and blessings of belonging to his kingdom. Formality or formalist and hypocrisy wanted neither. Follow along with me in Mark chapter 9, picking up in verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. 
For on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve and said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, taking him in his arms and said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. This ends the reading of the word of God. Here in this passage now, Jesus is teaching in these three passages here, Jesus is teaching what it looks like to live a life in the kingdom of Christ, in the kingdom of God. And each one of these, uh, though they seem kind of standalone, are all connected upon kingdom living. And the first thing I want us to see here in verses 30 through 32 is the source of kingdom life. We would read here in verse 30 that Jesus and his disciples, they're returning from their trip up into the northern region, Caesarea Philippi. They're making their way back down south. They're going to pass through Galilee. They're going to pass through Capernaum. They'll rest there for, for these accounts. But Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's making his way down to Jerusalem for the Passover, which will be the final time. And so Jesus, is, his mind is set upon Jerusalem. So they re-enter Galilee, we would see here, but he doesn't want people to know. His public ministry has taken a back seat to his private teaching ministry of his disciples. This whole section is about preparing his disciples for kingdom life and what they must know and be prepared for coming, soon coming with his death. And that's what we see in verse 31 here is the content of Jesus' teaching. Jesus is teaching right now to his disciples is centering on his upcoming death in resurrection. Now, we would notice this is the second time he's telling them this. He's already told them once in chapter 8, verse 31, and he's speaking it once again so that they would understand, preparing them for what lies ahead. Jesus is preparing his disciples here for the cross. Jesus is teaching them the way of discipleship. Jesus is showing them what it means to belong to his kingdom. Ultimately, what we see here is that Jesus is the source of kingdom life, even when it comes to life with his disciples. And so this is the main point we would see here in verses 30 through 32, is that entrance into the kingdom of Christ comes only through the death and resurrection of Jesus. There is no other way in. Formalists and hypocrisy might be able to jump a wall, but there is no other way in except through the cross. There are no back doors. There are no side doors. There are no easy entrances. No. We know from the whole testimony of Scripture that Jesus is not a way, but the way. Jesus is the way. He is the way to God. He is the way to eternal life. It is not as though there are other means. We must recognize the exclusivity of the gospel. Jesus is the only source of eternal life. He is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life. Coming on the, towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus would illustrate this point very clearly in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. 
He says, enter by the narrow gates. No doubt this is what John Bunyan has in mind as Christian would see the wicked gate and make his way through. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. So what we must see here in this teaching, this short three verses here from Jesus, is that for anyone to belong to the kingdom of God, it is only through the person and work of Jesus Christ. You say, okay, well, how does that work? How can we be even more practical within that? While that's a true statement, what does that look like? How does one, spiritually speaking, enter into the kingdom of God here and now? For some of us in here, majority of us, we belong to that kingdom. But there are some in here that do not belong to the kingdom of God, that do not belong to the kingdom of Christ. How is it that one can go from the the, the kingdom of this world into the kingdom of Christ? Let me give it to you as simply as I possibly can. It's as simple as A, B, C. Sometimes we overcomplicate things, and we need to peel it back. So, How does one enter into the spiritual kingdom of Christ? A, you must accept. You must accept the truth found in God's word. You must accept the word of God as truth, that it is speaking about you and to you. We must accept the truth of what the Bible says about who God is. That God is good. God is loving. God is perfect. God is just. Ultimately, God is holy. But that is not just enough to accept truth about who God is. The Bible also tells us who we are. We must accept the truth of what the Bible says about us. We are humans. We all would accept that, I hope. Created in the image of God. Sinful. Fallen. Depraved. Helpless. In need of rescue. Cut off from a holy God. So what we have here in the Bible is sinful humanity and a holy God. And when we accept these things as true, we must understand that, they, that they're like two opposite ends of a magnet. They do not go together. How does a holy God deal with sinful people? This is the divine dilemma of all of Scripture. We say, well, he, he, he forgives. Yes, God forgives. He is loving and he is kind. But a forgiving, holy God cannot let sin go unpunished. He cannot just overlook it. So while God forgives and that is loving in his nature and who he is, he is just. So for him to just sweep aside our sins and say, ah, you know, you're bad, but you just you do some good things too. He is no longer a just God. He has now compromised his attributes. Therefore, he is no longer a perfect God. So how does a perfect, holy, and just God deal with sinful people who have violated his law? We can't go in the time machine and reverse our time back and undo our sins. They've been committed. We're guilty before a holy God. This is what the Bible tells us. Why does a holy God want sinful people to come into his kingdom? They'll just pollute that too, would they not? No, this is what we must understand. Who God is, in light of who God is, we must understand who we are, and that leaves us with the predicament. It is the divine dilemma. We must accept this tension to be true. That's A. B, believe. What does it mean to believe? You see, when we understand about a holy God and a sinful person, it makes the cross of Christ so much more beautiful. 
glorious. We are to believe, we are to trust in Christ that he died on a cross to make payment for your sins so that God can forgive you and count your sins upon his son so that he does not count them against your record. So when Jesus dies on the cross, he dies to bear the sins of his people, for the sins of the people who will enter into the kingdom so that they can be forgiven and Jesus can discharge their debts. Jesus is the only sinless one who dies in the place of sinful people so that he can present them blameless. So Jesus dies on the cross. We must believe this to make payment for the sins, to reconcile us to a holy God. This is the clear testimony of Scripture, Romans chapter 3, verse 26, so that God would be just, the just and the justifier of those who have faith in Christ. Romans 5.1, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Further on in Romans chapter 5, verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life? This is so important to understand. We must believe. We must apprehend the cross by faith. We are to trust in Christ. That there is one mediator between God and man, and it is the man Christ Jesus. So what does it mean to believe on Christ? It means to turn to him. If Christ is in this direction, my life must be oriented in this direction because before my life was oriented in this direction, which was sin, self, Satan, the world, and all my own desires, everything that sought gratification for myself. But to turn to Christ is to turn away from my sins. You see? So we, we turn in faith to Christ. And in turning to Christ, it is a repenting of our sins. It is a forsaking of our sins. And it is laying hold of the God-man by faith. It is to see the cross. It is to see that he is your savior. That he bore your sins. It is to trust in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for your salvation. There are no unbelievers in the kingdom. What is faith? You've heard it said many ways. Forsaking all, I trust him. A, B, C, confess, confess. Following Jesus is not a private matter of your life. No, that's my faith, and you know, if nobody knows about it, we're not to be in the closet. We're lights. We're to be a city on a hill. We are to stand boldly, confess, and proclaim. Confess. The Bible tells us if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Those aren't my words. Those are Paul's. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So there's this confessing Jesus is Lord, which means I am not, and my sins I confess and I turn to him, for he is the forgiver of sins. So when we think about Jesus here, what he's saying to his disciples is that he is the source of kingdom life. Jesus died and rose, and as a result, he is the only source. He is redeemer and king to all who belong to his kingdom. This is why Peter can exclaim in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, that there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. There isn't plan B or option 2 or when in doubt choose C. 
Jesus is the source of kingdom life. And the question we must ask right now, before we even look at the rest of this text, is are you connected to the source? Have you entered by the narrow gate? Do you belong to this kingdom, this kingdom of righteousness, where the reign and rule of God is among us? Let me encourage you. I don't even think encourage is the right word. With the most seriousness of, 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 uh, that I can be, if you are not certain that you belong to this kingdom, do not leave here today until that is a certainty. You might have walked in here as formalist or a hypocrisy. Walk out a Christian. Entrance through the source of Jesus Christ marks the beginning of kingdom life. It is not the end. Accept, believe, confess starts the journey. A, B, C. And for some of us in here, it's time to start the journey. For others of us in here, this is a reminder. Jesus is your life. Jesus is your source. It is Jesus who is going to present you before the Father blameless, not your own actions, not your morality, not your formality, not your church attendance, not your giving, none of that. It is Jesus and his righteousness. That is where our life is. And so he's teaching his disciples here that he is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise again triumphant as the God-man. And he becomes the source for all, by which all people will go to the Father is through Christ. He is our source. But moving on from there, he is also, he also now will teach in verses 33 to 37 about the status of kingdom life. What does it look like for those who belong to this kingdom? Let's give some explanation here. The disciples have moved into Galilee. They've gone to Capernaum now where Jesus has spent the majority of his ministry and they're in a house. Most likely, probably, it's Peter's house. This is where he was before. This has been kind of the, the base of residence. And so probably in Peter's house, and they all settle in, and Jesus asks his disciples a question. He said, hey, wait a minute. What were you guys talking about while we were traveling down here? You could hear the crickets chirping. Busted. Oh, he heard us. I, um, no doubt they're embarrassed and their heads hang in shame. And what do we see? They kept silent. You know, the disciples here remind me of kids at Little League. I had the privilege of coaching uh, Little League fall ball this, this past season. Um, and it was, it was a blessing. It was awesome. Um, but you would hear the kids argue about who's the greatest. Well, I hit the ball further than you. Okay, I run faster than you, and they get into all of these things, and they're arguing about who's the greatest, and I'm like, you're seven. None of you are great, you know, but you might be, and I couldn't help but think these are grown men, and they're arguing about who's the greatest, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. <laughs> Some of them say, well, we literally jumped out of a boat to follow him. Well, the other guy says, well, I left my fishing business. I left my lucrative business behind. Matthew says, well, I was making a lot of money, you know, lying in my pockets with taxes, and I gave that up. I should be the greatest, right? I've given up so much. 
John's like, well, I'm just a teenager. I'm a kid, but I probably have the longest time with him. So they go and they're arguing, and they look at the nine, and they say, well, you guys are all failures. Remember what happened last time? You tried to cast out that demon, and you failed. So you guys are already not even close to the greatest. You're second string. So now they've narrowed it down to three. There's Peter, James, and John. Well, Peter, he called you Satan, so you, you don't count. So now we're down to James and John. Who's the greatest? Well, who's the person who messes up in the next account? John. So it must be James, right? James is the greatest. Well, James is the one who dies first. They're arguing about this silly issue. And what we see here in the disciples is that they fail to understand the status of those who belong to the kingdom of Christ. It is a failure to understand. But this is, they're not acting crazy, really. They're not at all removed from the world that we live in today. Power, status, greatness. This is what appeals to the carnal mind. We live in a world that says survival of the fittest. It's cutthroat. It's power, success, glory, greatness. By whatever means necessary to make it to the top, to be great, you have to leave a lot of casualties in your wake. And what Jesus is saying here is no. Absolutely not. The standards of this world do not match the standards of God's kingdom. They are actually in polar opposites. And Jesus tells his disciples, no. And here's the point. Verse 35. It says, though Jesus asks asks the question, do you want to be first? Do you want to be great? If you do, you need to stop and check yourself. Because if that's what's driving you, even in Christian labor and kingdom work, you are motivated for the wrong reasons. It's as though Jesus says, it will never do Because kingdom life is not about you, it's about others. This is what Jesus says, verse 35. He sat down, called the twelve, said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all, and a servant of all. Jesus says this is what our status should be in the kingdom. I am last. And I love it. And I'm happy with it. And I'm content with it. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Being last means that there is nobody behind you. No, but that you are, you are happy to put others before you. When we say, I am last, what that means is that my heart is for you and for others and not about me and mine. I am last. I am willing to be spent and spend for others. I am last. I am willing to be inconvenienced for the sake of others. I am last. I'm willing to step aside to allow others to succeed. It's not about me. You say, I am a servant. We recognize it's never been about us, but it's all been about Christ. We are at best the prongs that hold up the diamond. Nobody looks at a ring and says, those are beautiful prongs. Who cares? It's how, what do they do? They show the diamond That's who Christ is. All we are are prongs in the service of the king. We are to uphold the diamond. We are to be last of all, servant of all. Do you know how many problems we would solve if we adopted this mentality? If this was our mindset, these were our actions and attitudes? And I'm not talking about in the world. Do you know how many problems we would just solve in the church? If we were willing to say, I am last, I am a servant of all, We'd solve a lot of problems and we'd prevent the majority of them from even happening. 
Jesus himself demonstrates this attitude, these actions of kingdom life. Hear it from Paul in Philippians chapter 2. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's humility. That's the God-man saying, I am willing to lay aside, impoverish all my riches so that he might save his people, that he might lay down his life, that it would be raised up again for the salvation of his people. To further drive this point home here in verses 36 and 37, Jesus uses a child. Jesus grabs a child as an object lesson, as an illustration. And what we see here, verses 36 and 37, Jesus wraps his arms around a small child. Presumably, if they're in Peter's house, maybe Peter's child, we don't know. But there's obviously a child present in the house, and Jesus calls that child to himself, wraps his arms around this child, and uses it, uses him or her as a visible, visible illustration. You know, there's a commentator, uh, R.T. France, scholar, who, who, who's written a lot in Mark and Matthew and New Testament Gospels. And he says this. He says, quote, children represent the lowest of the social status. And he's, he's dealing in the first century. And what he says here is Jesus is welcoming them. His point is to treat them as significant rather than ignoring or suppressing them. This is the status of kingdom life. There is no one beneath you. That's the point Jesus is making here. You know, we live in a world that idolizes youthfulness but despises children. Children get a lot of law even in churches. How much grace? (laughs) Status in the kingdom calls upon us to get out of our comfort zone. If you are comfortable where you are, I would encourage you to, and I would challenge you, Think about that. Status in the kingdom calls us to get out of our comfort zone. Embrace children. Embrace the lowly. Those of lower social status, the marginalized, and the outcast. Those who seem underneath of you by society's standards. There's no social order in the kingdom of Christ. There's king and there are servants. You see, only in the kingdom of God do we see successful business professionals teaching small children in Awana. Only in the kingdom of Christ do we see highly educated people learning from children. Only in the kingdom of God do we see a race to the bottom. I am last. I am a servant for Jesus' sake. This needs to be our mentality. This need, we must adopt this. This is what Jesus is teaching us here. When we can say, my status means nothing to me. I don't have to be popular, predominant, put forth, applauded, esteemed, or recognized. I am blood-bought, saved by the source, and a servant by status. I am happy to serve. I am last. 
then we begin to live out our calling as servants for Jesus' sake. And so while the disciples were arguing about who was the greatest, Jesus is teaching them the lesson. We must be servants. We must be last. Third thing we see here in verses 38 through 40 is the scope of kingdom life. It's kind of a relief here. We look at verse 38 and we see John said to him, finally, it's not Peter. Peter has opened his mouth too many times. Now John's going to do it. And John mentions to Jesus something that had bothered the disciples and an action that they took. There was somebody that we didn't recognize, Jesus, who was using your name, and he was casting out demons, but he wasn't following with us, so we needed to quiet him because we don't know him. This is the problem. We saw someone performing mighty works, and we tried to stop him because he didn't belong to our group. How does Jesus respond to this? Jesus says, don't stop him. Don't stop the one who is doing a mighty work in my name. This is what Jesus is saying here in verses 39 and 40. He is not our enemy. In fact, we are on the same side. Anyone that is not against us is for us. In a simple way, we'd say this man belonged to team Jesus. So here's the point that Mark's audience, as they were reading this or hearing this passage, what did they need to understand? They needed to be encouraged to demonstrate a welcoming openness to followers of Jesus. As they're in Rome, if somebody had traveled to Rome, though that person wasn't in their church, but they were still a follower of Christ, he's to be welcomed. She is to be welcomed into that church. What Jesus is doing here on the negative side is he is speaking against narrow cliquishness in churches, showing us the scope of the kingdom. And here's the point. The kingdom of Christ is bigger than Quidneset. Much bigger. I would be sad if this was all there was to the kingdom of Christ. Here's the point, verse 41. He says, There will be people who embrace you, who show hospitality and kindness because you belong to Christ. Therefore, you are to do the same. Receive one in Jesus' name because you both belong to the same kingdom. Brothers and sisters, I think we need to be reminded that the scope of God's kingdom is bigger than our tradition, is bigger than our congregation. The scope of God's kingdom is bigger than following just one stream of evangelical theology. This is the issue that John has. He sees that his scope was too narrow, and Jesus corrects him to give him a broader perspective. What Jesus is teaching here is there will be some that you do not recognize. Maybe even some who believe a little bit differently than you, who belong to his kingdom. They have entered by the narrow gate. They have accepted, believed, confessed Christ. But they are not 100% lined up with all of your dogma. If we think conservative evangelical Baptists are the only ones in the kingdom, we are John in this passage. And we should not be there. The kingdom of Christ consists of Presbyterians and Anglicans and Baptists and Congregationalists and those who baptize babies and those who baptize believers. Different forms of church government. Different views on Israel. There are some who are Calvinists and there are some who are on their way to becoming Calvinists. 
There are some who believe in the continuation of sign gifts, and there are some who believe that they have ceased. There are some that dim the lights with worship, and there are some who sing psalms only without any instruments. There are those who attend church in a t-shirt and shorts, and there are those who attend church in a suit and tie. They all belong to the kingdom of Christ. Because none of the things that I mentioned are the basis for belonging to the kingdom. They are second, third, fourth tier, tertiary issues at best. Listen, denominations and preferences are fine. They are good. But when we make them exclusive, we go wrong. What's the basis for belonging to the kingdom? The source. It's the source. Jesus Christ. So the question we ask, has Christ paid for my sins? Are you forgiven? Are you trusting in Jesus Christ? Are you a follower of him? That's the basis for belonging. So how would we apply even this short teaching passage from Jesus? I would call upon all of us to humbly embrace Christians who believe a little bit different than we do. And I would encourage you that it will challenge you and it will strengthen you in your faith. I was discipled through seminary by Presbyterians and all they did was strengthen me as a Baptist when they tried to convert me or change my views on certain things. But I have been blessed by a large group of people that have influenced my life. I preach at various churches Throughout, throughout Rhode Island, New England, I preach at PCR churches, PCA churches, SBC churches, independent Baptist churches, Christian fellowship churches, non-denominational churches, and they're all different. And they all have different flavors, and you have to dress differently. Some want you to wear the suit and tie. Some, you are out of place if you wear a suit and tie. And so they're, they're all different. But what in every place, although worship is different, and the services vary in length, some high liturgy, some low liturgy. And every, but in every place, it is the body of Christ. It is a kingdom outpost. It is a local church. In every place, the same gospel is preached. That's because I'm doing it. But that's, not, that's just because that's where I'm at. Nonetheless, though, but they preach the gospel. They preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. They call upon sinners to repent and to put their faith in Christ. The same Jesus is worshipped in these locations. And so as we think on the kingdom of Christ, we need to be those who show hospitality and kindness to others in Jesus' name. We need to show that kindness to a common brother or sister in the faith, though they might believe some things a little differently than us. So as we think about even these three passages here, let me remind you of these things. We have been invited and enlisted into the kingdom of Christ. This is our privilege, but this is also a duty with responsibilities. So remember that the source of kingdom life is Jesus alone. It is not Jesus and it is not Jesus in my church attendance. It is not Jesus in my good works. It is not Jesus in anything. It is Jesus alone. So that I am only belonging to the family of God through the kindness and the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, my Lord and my Savior. 
my God, my King. He is the source, and it is through the cross. The status of kingdom life, I am last. I am a servant of all for Jesus' sake. Because Jesus can say, he did that for your sake. He humbled himself and took the form of a servant and died at the hands of sinful men in order to secure for you a redemption that cannot be lost. Jesus was a servant of all and says, go and do likewise, brothers and sisters. And remember the scope of the kingdom. We are to embrace others in Jesus' name. So let me ask you, where are you this morning? Are you living in the kingdom of Christ? Is he your redeemer and king? Or are you like formalist and hypocrisy? You've jumped the wall. You have not come through the narrow gate. You can answer that question and only you can answer that question. But if that is true of you, Jesus welcomes sinners. Jesus died for sinners. Come to him. Come through the narrow gate. Enter by the cross. And at the cross is where your burden of sin will be released. You can't let it go yourself. But only through forgiveness in Jesus' name. So as we would conclude even now this morning, may we take that application that Jesus gives about being kind and hospitable to others. May we be those that give a cup of water to others because they belong to Christ. Instead of focusing on where we disagree, let's focus on where we agree. And in doing so, we give all glory to Christ because it is his kingdom to which we belong, not our own. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that you have called us to an eternal, everlasting kingdom. A kingdom that you are building, that you are drawing people to. We thank you for Jesus Christ, our source, our King, our Redeemer. And we gladly submit to him. Lord, help us to take these words from Christ. May they be applied to our hearts. May we look at ways in which we can serve others and not be served by others. Forgive us, Lord, if we think too highly of our own way and to the point of looking down upon others because they might think differently. They might see things differently, Lord. Give us a humility in our convictions and a kindness in our actions towards other brothers and sisters in Jesus' name. We pray this for your glory. Amen.